This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, I must say it's great to have a microphone back in front of me again. To which I would hasten to add, it was great to not have a microphone in front of me for the past four weeks. Yes, I need to thank Mr. Marillon for holding down the fort and also the assistance we received from the good people over at KDVS, including Guy and, and, and some other folks. I, I, I'm not, not even sure who to thank right now, but uh, whoever you are, thanks. And yes, we'll look it up by next, next week's show. We've always advocated for travel on this program. At one point, we thought about having a travel agent come on on a semi-regular basis to talk about things. Unfortunately, that agent, uh, one Mr. Stan Godwin, retired from the art of travel agencying, to which I would hasten to add his absence was sadly, (laughs) grievously noted on this past trip. On the balance, I would call it a smashing success. It was my close personal associate, Ms. Elise Wilmoth, who suggested the idea of going to Africa at the start of the summer. She had the idea of visiting uh, both Kenya and Tanzania as part of the wildlife migration, something I intended to pursue with my late cousin, Doug Cheeseman, whose travel agency offered um, similar trips to Africa. I think Doug made, I don't know, know, a couple dozen trips over there. Sadly, he's no longer with us, so I don't have that option available. And having been fortunate enough to visit uh, both Kenya and Tanzania three-odd decades ago, I just was not that enthused about that. What I did want to do, above all else, was visit the Okavango Delta in Botswana, which has a well-earned reputation for being a wildlife spectacle of the highest order, which, as we'll relate as we go along, lived up to its reputation. What I proposed was a trip to southern Africa, which was also available through an agency providing such tours. My preferred route to southern Africa was to go through islands in the Indian Ocean, in particular the Seychelles and the island of Mauritius. To get there, I thought it made sense to fly to Dubai. This leg of the journey, Dubai slash Seychelles slash Mauritius, did not go well. But I don't want to bog down in telling uh, tales of ups and downs uh, while outside of the country because while I was gone, so many things took place in the world, which, which I was by and large ignoring. I did have a couple hotels where I could tune into CNN and the BBC for a while. But frankly, I thought it would be good to get away from it all. And we wholeheartedly recommend to you, dear listener, that once in a while, you do likewise even if it means going out to some cabin in the woods for a while and just disconnecting. So I think what makes sense is to have a show that's even less tightly wrapped than usual, which is a frightening concept, and talk about things that took place during the month of August and things that that Elise and I were engaged in. And no, I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but (laughs) the dirty secret of this program is we generally don't know how we're going to do things. We just take a shot at it and (laughs) hope it turns out. I do want to start by bitterly griping about what has become of the world of travel and and what has become of our uh, technology-based existence. This correspondent has done a fair amount of travel. As, As I speak at the moment, my lifetime total stands at 102 countries visited. 
Although there's a couple of naysayers out there that claim I can't claim the United States as a country visited. Although, in my opinion, I first visited it when I flopped out of the womb. And some naysayers claim that I cannot suggest that the USSR and Russia are separate entities. And as it turns out, we're going to have a lot more to say about that on today's program. I.e., the USSR versus Russia. But I say this because I I consider myself... a, a reasonably competent traveler. I've seldom been detained by the authorities. And anyway, that was that was just in passing. I never suffered a catastrophic accident overseas. I, I never contracted a deadly disease uh, overseas, at least. Well, <laughs> the jury may still be out on that one, but I don't think I did. And to Mr. McMillan's query, I would answer, no, I've never received an overseas letter that starts, hello, dad. But wouldn't you know it, in today's modern world, of do-it-yourself everything, where the corporations of planet Earth have learned that they can fire people and have customers do it yourself on so many enterprises using their cell phone, etc. Tremendous obstacles have been placed in the path of someone like myself who hates that kind of technology. And I can assure you, based on this past trip, my hatred has only, only intensified. And I'm determined not to bog down in that at the moment, but I I think I would like to start with one example of how this went down. In a taxi cab in Dubai, headed for the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest phallic symbol, which the good people of Dubai are waving at the world, saying, look, we have the biggest one. I asked the cab driver about tickets. He said, oh, you have to buy them online. I'm thinking, "That, that can't be correct. And indeed, it was not. It was possible to go to the Dubai shopping mall, find where the entrance to the Burj was, pay your money, get a ticket, make a visit. But a few weeks later, standing in line at Gold Reef City in Johannesburg, which is a kind of amusement park that includes, if you, if you care to do it, a visit to an actual gold mine where you go under, underground and um, look at the living conditions and the veins of ore and the pumps they needed, and all the high and low-tech equipment that was required, etc. Standing in line to get a ticket for, in this case, just the tour of the mine, the man directing traffic of the people entering said, oh, no, no, you have to do that online. To which I said, can I walk the 15 feet over to the booth selling tickets? At least it seems they're checking tickets. Pay my money and gain entrance? The guy looked puzzled and asked, well, are are you foreign? To which we answered, yes, we are foreigners. To which the guy said, well, then I I guess it's okay. So we walked over, paid our rand, and got the ticket. The rand being the unit of currency in South Africa. And boy, do I have tales of woe that make that pale into insignificance. But I'm going to spread that, I think, over the next several shows because it's kind of a downer. I do need to mention that the most downer-esque part of, of this journey, which was finding out that it was going to be impossible to get into the Seychelles Islands thanks to snafus with technology. Elise and I could have probably figured out how to get the necessary paperwork accomplished if we'd had more time. The ugly situation was that a few hours before we were to get on an aircraft to fly to the Seychelles, we discovered that the islands wanted all of this paperwork to be presented to them. We couldn't get it done. So we missed the Seychelles. I don't mind telling you that I was so frustrated by some of the hurdles that were suddenly appearing in our path that I was ready to just chuck the trip to Africa and say, 
let's go somewhere else. Let's go to Europe. Let's work our way out to the Canary Islands. Who knows? Just, just do something else. But then I turned on CNN and discovered that Europe was on fire. Not only was it on fire, it was experiencing record-breaking temperatures, which I hope we'll talk a bit more about on this show. River cruises on the European continent were having to bus people between, <laughs> at some point between parts of the journey because the water was too shallow for the ships to navigate the river. So uh, we need to talk about some of the eco-catastrophes taking place in the world because that's the sort of thing that we feel the need to discuss. But perhaps most remarkable for me about the events taking place in the world was the obituary column. Some truly remarkable people left us in the month of August. And, and no, I'm, I'm not referring to Olivia Newton-John, although she too will be missed. The towering figure on the world stage who departed last month was someone who, when Michael Hart, an author we had on this program a, a couple of decades ago, wrote his book originally in the 1970s, and he revised it in the 1990s, was titled The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. Fascinating premise, something that, you know, you, you can't truly do it, but it's it's fun thing to try and to discuss. And we've talked about that on this show over the years, I don't know, many times. But I'm stunned to note that someone who made the second edition of that volume of the 100 most influential persons in history is the guy we're talking about who passed away in August, Mikhail Gorbachev. Hart ranked him 95th all time of humans whose life made a difference in how the course of events went in world history. From position a few decades later, would we demote Gorbachev from the top 100? Maybe, but maybe not. What really struck me was the fact that his passing was not really page one news. I think when John Belushi died, he got more ink than Mikhail Gorbachev. Mr. Whelan does point out he was probably funnier than Gorbachev. But in spite of the fact that at one point John Belushi was associated with the nation's best-selling album, favorite TV show, and top movie, we can't really rank that up with single-handedly bringing an end to the last colonial world power. By that I mean the USSR. It is true that World War II brought the end of the British Empire, as it did the French overseas empire, but it did not impact all of the colonial nations that were affiliated with Russia. So I think we should take a moment and talk about that and Gorbachev's role in how that happened. And I think to do that, I will pull out my edition of The 100 and see what Mr. Michael Hart had to say about it. Coming in at 95th, ahead of Charlemagne and Homer. We have this narrative, writing, in 1995, Hart said, the most important political event of the last 40 years has been the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism. That movement, which for decades threatened to engulf the whole world, has declined with startling speed and now seems to be headed for the dustbin of history. At which point I cannot resist adding our oft-used joke, that these days, if you want to find a communist, you're going to have to go to Cuba, North Korea, or the Berkeley City Council. But said Hart, 
One man stands out as the pivotal figure in that astonishing decline and fall. Mikhail Gorbachev, the man who headed the USSR during its last six years. I want to jump ship at this point to the economist obituary of Gorbachev, which said he had not meant the Soviet Union to die. The man who ended the Cold War, who changed the course of the 20th century, was neither a dissident nor revolutionary. He intended to reform the Soviet Union, not destroy it. But his aversion to violence and his belief in the Enlightenment were enough to finish a system held together by repression and lies. Back to Hart. The Soviet Union faced many serious problems when Gorbachev took office, but all were exacerbated by the financial crunch caused by the enormous government spending on armaments. Hoping to end the arms race, he quickly accepted the proposal of the American president, Ronald Reagan, for a summit meeting. The two leaders met on four occasions. The most dramatic result was the Arms Limitation Treaty in December of 1987. This was the first treaty that actually reduced the number of nuclear weapons which the great powers had. In fact, an entire class of medium-range missiles was eliminated entirely. I cannot resist interrupting the narrative to note at this point that a lot more would have been accomplished in 1987 had not President Ronald Reagan insisted on the fact that the Star Wars missile defense system needed to remain intact. This, over the years, has provided an astonishing boondoggle of hundreds and hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars being diverted into a system that will never work. But I digress. Said Hart, another action that reduced international tensions was Gorbachev's decision to remove Soviet troops from Afghanistan. And being the editorializer that I am, I can't resist injecting and allowing for American troops to occupy Afghanistan. Notes Hart, the outside world had always severely criticized the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and the war was costly and unpopular at home. But Brezhnev, Andropov, and Chernenko, feeling a loss of face, had been unwilling to pull out. Finally, though, Gorbachev decided to cut his losses, and early in 1988, he signed an agreement providing for the withdrawal of all Soviet forces. Changes in foreign policy were dramatic, but the bulk of Gorbachev's efforts were devoted to domestic matters. From the beginning, he saw that a major program of perestroika, restructuring, was needed in order to deal with the poor performance of the Soviet economy. As one aspect of this restructuring, the power of the Communist Party, which formerly had been in virtually complete control of the economy, was greatly reduced under Gorbachev. On the economic level, the restructuring included the legalization of private enterprise in some fields. It should be noted that Gorbachev always insisted he was a loyal follower of Marx and Lenin and a firm believer in socialism. His goal, he said, was merely to reform the communist system so that it would work better. Perhaps the most revolutionary of his reforms was the policy of glasnost, or openness, which Gorbachev instituted in 1986. One aspect of glasnost was more openness and candor by the government concerning its activities and concerning events of public interest. Another was permitting private individuals or publications to discuss political matters freely. The publication of views whose expression just a few years earlier would have brought a prison sentence, or perhaps a death sentence during Stalin's era, became commonplace. It became possible for Soviet journalists to criticize government policies, also the Communist Party, high government officials, and Gorbachev himself. This woman likes to point out that, well, that, that's changed. 
You might criticize Putin these days, but you might also wind up with polonium-210 in your tea. At any rate, it's, it's astonishing to imagine that in the late 1980s, Germany was divided in two, as it had been since the end of World War II, and then other nations bordering the USSR, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, were all dominated by governments that were approved of by the Soviets. Hart notes that back in 1988-1989, many East Germans were escaping by an indirect route, by going to another East European country, which was legal, and then going from there to the West. While traveling in Guatemala in 1988, I met exactly such a person. My soon-to-become friend Sabina had gone to Hungary and then tried to slip out of Hungary to the West. She was captured, put in a Hungarian prison, and then sent back to East Germany, where she was also in prison. Amnesty International ransomed her out. It was becoming a popular thing to do in the late 80s, and the German president, Erich Honecker, tried to crack down on it. At that point, Gorbachev visited Berlin, told Honecker not to delay reforms, and warned him not to suppress the demonstrations by force, and made it clear that Soviet troops, of which there were 380,000 in East Germany at the time, would not be used against the East German populace. After a series of protests, Honecker had to resign, the Berlin Wall came down, and the first domino had fallen in Eastern Europe. And again, had Gorbachev not been in power, the usual reaction of the Soviets would have been to back up their client regimes in Eastern Europe and done what was necessary to suppress rebellions. They did this in Hungary, they did this in Czechoslovakia, and it was pretty clear they would do this as necessary until Gorby came along. Hart describes the successive falls of Eastern European nations, and I can't resist quoting from his comment about how the last holdout was Romania, where hardline dictator Nicolae Ceausescu was determined not to relinquish his power. When demonstrations against his rule occurred in December of 1989, he had the army fire onto the crowds, but the enraged populace would not be suppressed. The demonstrations continued and spread to other cities. On December 25th, Ceausescu was overthrown, captured, and executed. The last domino had fallen. If you were watching the news coverage back in 1989, you would have noted that the Romanian news kept showing over and over again the dead body of Ceausescu. I, I think to reassure the population that no, he really is dead, and no, he's not returning to life. And no, we do not know whether anyone took it upon himself to drive a stake through his heart. But come to think of it, just to be safe, it probably wasn't a bad idea. But more important than any of these changes was the fact that there was a growth of nationalist movements within the USSR. With his broad-minded approach, Gorbachev refused to crack down on these efforts. When the Lithuanian parliament boldly declared in 1990 the country's complete independence from the USSR, Gorbachev did not act. Now, technically, the Lithuanians were in their rights. For decades, the Soviet constitution had included a provision permitting any republic a right to secede. But before Gorbachev, it had always been understood that any attempt to exercise that right would be firmly suppressed with grievous consequences to those who made the attempt. Gorbachev's response was to denounce the Lithuanian action as illegal, and he threatened dire consequences if it was not reversed. He imposed an economic embargo and paraded Soviet troops to the Lithuanian capital, but he did not crush the breakaway province by direct military force, nor did he shoot or even imprison the Lithuanian leaders as Stalin surely would have done. And so it was a second set of dominoes fell. In this case, the republics that had been annexed into the USSR, one by one, they declared their independence. 
And in every instance, the Red Army was not used to crush the rebellion. Now, this certainly has a, a different look today as the Russian army is marauding into Ukraine. But it might be fair to say that's because Gorbachev is now no longer with us and Vladimir Putin is in charge. Anyway, we could go on and devote an entire hour easily to the, the story of what happened in the USSR under Mikhail Gorbachev, but we're going to leave it there and simply note that in this correspondent's opinion, it is, it is a shame that not more is being said about his passing. The Economist noted that to the elite of modern Russia, Gorbachev was an oddity, if not a traitor, a fool, who brought about the collapse of the Soviet Union and made no money out of it. It is sad to note that in the first years after his resignation, he did a commercial for Pizza Hut for the money. He did receive the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize, but the money from that was used to set up Novaya Gazeta, Russia's liberal newspaper, which is, as reported on this program and elsewhere, faring poorly under the Putin regime. I was privileged to be in the audience when Mikhail Gorbachev uh, came to the convention center in Sacramento. I'm sad to note that he appeared on the same stage as Ronald Reagan's bonehead son, Michael, who, in my opinion, was frankly not up to the task of having an onstage chat with Gorbachev. But all that said, I was glad to be a witness to it and to have been in the same room with the man at the same time, even if it was from the 48th row. I guess uh, Gorbachev passed away in obscurity in Moscow, which sort of reminds us of the sad uh, final years, twilight years of Nikola Tesla, a true giant of electrical engineering, who spent his last years feeding pigeons in the park. The story of how it is someone develops uh, fantastic new technologies and, 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 and sees these, these discoveries and um, developments taken from him by grasping business types is, is a very old story. We've talked about it repeatedly in the case of uh, Philo Farnsworth, the father of electronic television. Uh, the story of how Alexander Graham Bell <laughs> may have... Uh, um, lifted a few things from some competitors. We do hope at some point to bring Tim Wu on this program. His book on, on how technologies um, generally travel this route is, is just a fantastic book, and we, we need to talk to him about it directly. He uh, is an outspoken critic. He's actually a lawyer, and an outspoken critic of the monopolies that are the tech giant corporations. And speaking of giant corporations, there's a great mystery surrounding Dubai in the United Arab Emirates that I was unable to solve on the trip, which I'm going to try working on in the weeks to come, which is, why does this place exist? Emirates Air is expanding like there's no tomorrow. People from all over the world are converging on Dubai, and I'm just puzzled as to why. Yes, you can go to this fantastically huge Dubai mall, and you can shop. For all of the luxury name brands you'd find on Rodeo Drive, including one called Rodeo Drive, along with Louis Vuitton, Rolex, Tissot, Versace, Longier, Cartier, Burberry, and all these other things that I know nothing about and don't want to know about. I was just puzzled by why it is anybody would get on a plane in Europe or America and fly to the Middle East to shop for the same brands you could find anywhere. Well, not just anywhere. I'm pretty sure if you want Versace, you're not going to find it in Rio Linda. But for God's sakes, you don't need to fly over the pole to Dubai. And if you do, I just want to point out, if, you, if you're inclined to do this, I would suggest you not do it in August. 
We experienced temperatures highs of 109 and lows of 94, to which you're tempted to add, for the benefit of people in Northern California and the Central Valley, who know heat. I mean, people in Sacramento, Davis, they know heat. But I think they don't know Dubai heat because it's not, as they say, a dry heat. There is significant moisture in the air and how this vast expanse of of tall buildings, glass and steel buildings, concrete buildings. I mean, I mean, if you're familiar with the greenhouse effect, which everybody that lives in, in Davis and Sacramento is, you know that it gets pretty nasty when the temperatures get to three digits. And yet, these massive, towering office buildings, 40, 50 stories high, in the case of the Burj Khalifa, 163 stories high, well, they need to be cooled. And I'm pretty sure they ain't using solar to do it. How much oil they're burning, I don't know, but it's got to be a lot. We return back to those eco-catastrophes taking place all over the world, which are due, which are due to climate change, global warming, man's increases of CO2 into the atmosphere. And you look at a place like Dubai generating astounding amounts of electricity by burning fossil fuels, you just have to say, oh my God. Anyway, as I mentioned at the top of the show, things got a lot better once, once I got uh, to Africa. And Elise and I were joined by 16 other individuals on this tour, wherein we saw things like thousands of elephants. I'm not kidding, thousands. Well, we talk a little bit about that in our second segment. Let's take a break. Remind you that this is Radio Parallax. I am the still slightly jet-lagged Douglas Everett, and, uh, well, stick around. Joseph's face was as black as the night And the pale yellow moon shone in his eyes His path was marked by the stars in the southern And he walked the length of his days under African skies. 